As a musician in early music, I had always imagined that in the boom time of early music performance in the late 1970s and the 1980s and 1990s, that medieval music specialists particularly must have had an incredibly hard life. Not only did they have to decipher notations and languages which hadn't been seen or heard for almost a thousand years, I thought, but they must have been running around continental Europe, scouring libraries and archives, conducting Indiana Jones-style adventures as they avoided prohibitive librarians and raided haunted vaults. A spooky room filled with haunted spider webs and creepy old-looking chests. Well... I just interviewed one very well-known medieval music performance pioneer about those early days, and his answers actually quite surprised me. But not in the way that I just set it up. I mean, that's podcast clickbait, obviously. So, are you ready for this? Join me. Our combined strength. Bring order to the galaxy. This is the Early Music Podcast with your host, Andrew Byrne. Brought to you by Rayma, the Early Music Network. Kawabunga. Episode 6. Benjamin Bagby is a vocalist, harpist, and scholar who, along with the late Barbara Thornton in 1977, formed the ensemble Sequencia. Over the next four decades, Sequencia became a household name, as it were, in medieval music performance. They recorded 31 albums, a number of which won top prizes, including a Diapason d'Or and a Grammy nomination, and have performed across the globe. I was really curious to hear from Ben how he got his introduction to medieval music. It, it all boils down to uh, attending a concert when I was uh, 16. Uh, there was an ensemble in um, the States, which was quite active during the 50s and 60s, called the New York Pro Musica Antiqua. And they also gave workshops uh, at various summer schools. And I had gone to a summer music school in Michigan, and the Pro Musica happened to be in, in a residence, giving a workshop at the same time. And they gave a concert, and as a student, I got a free ticket, so I just... I had no idea what I was going to see. And it was a concert of um, music by Guillaume de Machaut and 13th century motets. So that was a cold dive into that repertoire <laughs> for me. I'd yeah. never heard of it before. And it just electrified me. And I, I said, that's what I'm going to do. A few years later, Bagby arrived at the Schola Cantorum Basiliensis in Basel, Switzerland. Founded in 1933, the Scola was the first conservatory to specialize in the study of early music performance. However, it wasn't until the late 1960s, when the early music movement we know today was in its infancy, that it attracted a talented multinational student base. So, what was it like back then? I stumbled into a uh, into a medieval, they called it medieval and renaissance music, but it was medieval, run by an ensemble called the Studio der Frühen Musik, which was a, a very big ensemble on the scene in the 60s and well into the 70s. And uh, they had been hired by the Scola to be in residence and, and run this program and teach the performance uh, aspect of medieval music. So it was on paper, it looked fantastic. And, and, and indeed, when it worked, it really worked wonderfully well. 
There, there was a lot of energy there, to say the least, passionate energy. But the ensemble, the studio, um, they had a very clear idea what they wanted to teach. And uh, it, it, we had nothing to say about <laughs> that. Nobody was interested in what we wanted to do. And it was a sweatshop. We really <laughs> worked on problems of performance practice with, with a quite inspiring and also quite tyrannical teacher who inspired fear and loathing, but also a lot of respect uh, from his students. But how much music from this period was actually available, apart from the pieces which had already been taken up by these pioneer medieval ensembles that we've already spoken about? There was a lot available because the scholarship, the principal scholarship for medieval music had begun in the late 19th century and, and really increased throughout the 20th century. And, and beginning in the 50s and 60s, there was this huge uh, amount of energy put into transcribing everything. You had lots and lots of editions and transcriptions. It was more on how to transcribe it. And, and that's where all the energy went. And, and so there were indeed transcriptions available. It was much harder to access manuscripts. I mean, that really required patience and money and, and uh, for, for very bad quality uh, microfilms. So that's, that's something that has changed for the better enormously in the last 20 or 30 years, the access to sources. If you want to know more about medieval notation, then visit this episode's webpage. You can find the link in the show notes. So what were the skills one had to pick up to be able to work on, say, transcribed repertoire whose manuscript you hadn't yet had that chance to see, or even to look at repertoire that you knew was out there but just hadn't been looked at yet? Was it even clear to musicians then what the sources for most medieval music were? As usual, Basel has the most fantastic collection of microfilms, and, and uh, we had to look at them in the old-fashioned way, which was, you know, spooling through <laughs> very poor quality black and white microfilms. We, we had a lot of hindernesses, hindernesses uh, a lot of barriers thrown up uh, in front of us. And, and when you're confronted with a barrier, you get creative and find ways to, to solve it. So, yes, that was pretty much clear what the sources were. I, I remember myself ordering from the library colored slides because we needed to have color. You can't imagine how much trouble it was to get something <laughs> color back then. Everything was black and white. Yeah. Um, because of the red notation, it did kind of turn into a, using the same toolbox to, to, to get to know a different repertoire. At a time when the ability to notate rhythm wasn't yet fully developed, notes that were written in red ink rather than in the usual black signified a short section in the music where there was a change in meter. Where there are usually moments in between projects where you had to go off and research what you would do next. I'm sort of imagining here that, you know, every project required hours of browsing microfilms looking aimlessly for the next inspiring piece to perform there was always much too much to do mm -hmm. and we were always feeling swamped with projects and and the tr the problem was deciding what to do next and where to focus uh, energies and resources uh, there just was so much to be done and so many interesting repertoires and so many undiscovered manuscripts and repertoires and languages that it was kind of a a feeling of uh, never slowing down for a moment there was never a time where we were sort of drifting around, oh, what will we do next? I can't think of anything interesting to work on. It, it was just a, a, a very intense period, and, and in fact, it's still going on. First recordings often do contribute to the taste or the aesthetic of later performances by other artists. 
Did you feel that when you began to make first ever recordings of this repertoire, that there was a certain sense of, well, I hesitate to use the word, but I'll say it anyway, responsibility? First recordings do send a message um, because they, they're either sending a message that you're copying something that you admire that already exists or that you're really deciding to try something different. I think uh, you're right about that. Our first recording, at least the first one to come out, was called in German Spielmann und Kleriker. And I, uh, I can't even remember the year anymore, but it was really a long time ago. And it only had, I think, five pieces on the whole record, um, which was for a medieval music recording at the time, quite a new thing because the, the whole spiel had been medieval music consists of many, many tiny pieces, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes is already mm, mm -hmm. getting a bit long. Um, lots and lots of short things and constantly changing the sound and so that it it's varied and uh, the, the phrase which was always used then and is still used today which just makes my blood boil is rich and varied <laughs> yeah i understand that's i mean when you hear that phrase rich and varied you know it's neither it's just more of the same <laughs> and uh and we we were at that time really because my my uh, partner and I Barbara Thornton and I had each been working on larger forms. Uh, in fact, our diploma arbeit at the Scola was hers was dealing with large form Aquitanian versus, and I was dealing with monophonic planctus from the Florence manuscripts. It's all very arcane stuff. Looks like we've got another mystery on our hands. Uh-oh! If you want to know more about Acatanian Versus and Monophonic Planctus, then check out this episode's webpage. The link is in the show notes. <laughs> but large forms, and we were interested in lays and sequences and estampi, the formal idea behind that. And especially the lay, which it, not many people were singing or performing lays because they're long. And uh, you have to commit yourself to a piece that's going to last maybe eight, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15. We decided to make our first recording concentrating on those forms. So instrumental lays, vocal lays in Latin, in French, and uh, with big forms. And it's not about keeping the audience entertained with something superficial. It's about saying, okay, let's take some time out and really go into this piece. You know, what happened to Samson? Why is this cleric giving up on love and using Hercules, the story of Hercules, as his excuse? I don't know if that set any kind of trend, but it certainly set a trend for us that we had trouble going back to the old model, uh, which we, of course, tried to do a couple mm -hmm. of years after that. So we're coming to the end here now, and I'd like to ask you about the first Ordo for Tutum CD. Sequencia's first big hit was the 1982 recording of Hildegard von Bingen's Ordo for Tutum, a morality play set to music. Hildegard was already a known quantity, but how was this work presented to you? We knew about Hildegard's music beforehand, but it, her music had always been presented to us by chant scholars who viewed it as a kind of decadent, less interesting version of chant, late and decadent. And uh, the fact that it was by a, a female composer didn't even factor into their perceptions of it. It was just not chant, which meant it was not really worthy mm -hmm. uh, of study. So we, the more we went into it, the more we realized it was indeed worthy. And there had just been published in the late 60s the edition by the nuns of Eibingen of Hildegard's music. Uh, this edition is still widely used, even though it's quite faulty. But that was known. I mean, so it wasn't a secret, and especially not in the German Benedictine world. Hildegard was very well known. 
This was really one of the first major projects of Sequencia. Could you just tell us a little bit about how it got started and what the preparation was like? When we made the decision to move ahead with Oro Virtutum, the, the first thing that we uh, knew for a fact was that we were lacking in expertise uh, to deal with the manuscript, but also to deal with the language. And uh, so we enlisted the aid of two scholars um, who really helped us enormously dealing with the the meaning of notation and the role of notation in all of this. And we convinced the West German radio to host a symposium in Cologne with our ensemble rehearsing, uh, giving an impromptu kind of workshop. It was all recorded and broadcast on the WDR. So we benefited enormously from the fact that cultural life was so wonderfully supported back in those days. This was before German reunification, uh, when the money started to be used for different things. Um, so we were just incredibly lucky. I can't say it any other way. First of all, we went to Wiesbaden and, and looked at the manuscript for the first time. Back in those days, you could actually get your hands on it. We had a lot of help at the beginning. And I mean, remember, we were only in our 20s. Or it, you know, it's just turned 30 when this project came along. We were still relatively unexperienced. And we had this amazing support from the WDR. So what was that first production like? The first production, the one in 82, was really uh, very brainy. It was uh, organized around the use of instruments and symbolic meaning of certain instruments for specific characters in the in the play. You know, there are the personifications of the virtues who are singing and introducing themselves. And then there's a soul. There's Humilitas, who is the queen of the virtues. And then there's a devil who, by the way, doesn't sing. He just screams or speaks. He's deprived mm. of song. Very so, no, it, it was fairly uh, intellectually and conceptually, it was fairly clear early on how it was going to go. And, and then we had a very liberally organized rehearsal period at the beginning, like six weeks of rehearsal. Whoa, 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 hold on a second. You're telling me that the West German radio paid a bunch of 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds to rehearse for six weeks some piece from the medieval period and then put it on the radio. I mean, guys, come on. What has the world come to? I don't mean then, I mean today. That would be out of the question today. An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. Wow. Um, with with 12 people, it was enormous. And we worked everything out in a kind of workshop manner. And then the, the when the first performance came along, it, it was also staged. So then we had another series of rehearsals involving uh, the staging. And and by the way, it was filmed for the for the television. And it's a little known uh, TV film that is interesting to watch today because it, it really reeks of the 1980s in, in, in visuals. You know. But it's uh, it's still kind of interesting to watch. I, I look forward to finding that one if it's on the internet somewhere. I don't think I, I have a copy, but I've been strictly instructed not to show it. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. So if any of our listeners are very internet savvy and are interested in helping me find this videotape from 1982, then please do send the link or a copy of the video, if you have it, to the email in the description of this podcast. Anyway, I very much hope that you enjoyed this interview. I certainly learned a lot. Benjamin Bagby, thanks very much for joining us for this podcast today. Thanks for inviting me. It was my pleasure.
In the next episode, I speak with British composer Erilyn Wallen about Dido's Ghost, her 2021 opera written as a modern sequel to Henry Purcell's late 17th century opera, Dido and Aeneas. Thanks for listening.